Hi, everyone. This is Read Watch Play. I'm Cleo. I'm James. I'm Corinne. And I'm Justin. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Labyrinth, directed by Jim Henson. And oh boy, have I been waiting for this for basically the entirety of the time we've been doing this podcast. I think this is the third time that you that we've tried to maybe build a topic that involved Labyrinth and the only time that it's come together. I've been trying to make Labyrinth happen forever, pretty much. Like literally since the first meeting where we sat down. And we were like, let's do a podcast. And I was like, obviously, we're going to be covering, covering Labyrinth at some point, right? And everyone agreed, but now now is the magic moment. Uh, and just in case there is someone listening who, for some godforsaken reason, has never watched Labyrinth or heard of Labyrinth, um, it's a movie that came out in 1986, starring uh, Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie, and then like a whole parade of puppeteers, including Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, who played Hoggle. And it's basically, it's a coming of age slash ending of childhood movie uh, about a 14-year-old girl who goes to save her half-brother, who's like a little baby, from Jareth, the Goblin King, who kidnaps him and is going to turn him into a goblin if Sarah can't solve this massive labyrinth uh, and rescue her brother and basically stand up to Jareth, who is this figure who is both seductive, because he's played by fucking David Bowie, uh, and also terrifying, and thematically is really interesting. We'll we'll get into some of the deeper stuff a little bit later, but it's also important to note that this is a musical, uh, because David Bowie and some of the music numbers like don't really make a whole lot of sense diegetic it's just like okay now we're going to start singing about this one topic that's like kind of related but doesn't really move the plot forward and sometimes it's like a really important part of the scene uh but the musical numbers are fantastic and the soundtrack is amazing yeah i always forget that it's a musical um like not not because the the musical parts aren't at least occasionally important but i they're never like the the specific thing that I remember about the movie. And so whenever I go back to watch it and then like Bowie starts singing, I was like, Oh, right. Yeah. The, the other I have. So as we record this, I'm looking at my giant shelf of labyrinth paraphernalia, uh, which includes a lot of the, uh, God, what do you call them? The, the pop figurines, the, uh, the Funko pops, Funko pops. Yeah. I was going to say Junko. Cause there's an artist I like named Junko Mizuno, but that's not right. Um, and then a bunch. So it was the the God. What year anniversary was it? I can't do math. The most recent would have been the thirtieth. Yeah, the thirtieth anniversary would have been two years. Ago. Yeah, I think it was the thirtieth. And so they released a bunch of new like art books and behind the scenes books and artist tribute books. And so I have all of those. Um, and I also have the novelization of it and I, I i went out the day it was published to go find it and like no one was carrying it except for um forbidden planet i think and then i also have the manga which i have not read yet but i've heard like very mixed things about but it's been yeah it's interesting it didn't do well when it was first released like it just didn't and it was the last movie jim henson directed before he passed away um and he never really got to see the cult following it earned eventually which always kind of struck me as sad. Yeah, it's something that I was thinking about when, um, you know, when you said at the beginning, sort of that notion of like, if there's someone who hasn't seen Labyrinth, and it makes me kind of wonder, um, it it feels like, you know, something with that sort of cult following is much more likely to be the kind of thing that that really lives on for, for a long time. Um, but I do wonder if it's the kind of thing where, because I remember, at least when, when I was a kid, there was definitely... It wasn't so much that like people you knew talked about it, but it was it was sort of understood that it was this like cool movie, um, like even beyond the fact that like you'd see it at like Blockbuster or something like that, and it would have like David Bowie on the cover and a bunch of Muppets. But like it was it it, it was understood that it was like this this cool thing. It was a staple, and I, I'm always curious about whether that's that's kind of still the case today because you know like you said it was not immediately successful. It was definitely a cult hit, so it's got the like it kind of has the thing that means it'll sort of be around forever, but I'm always curious about how 
like how new people come into Labyrinth today? Well, I'm going to share you my story of encountering Labyrinth for the first time. Uh, because I don't have anybody in my life, really, who's like a big 80s movies person, which is why I'm like neutral at best on most 80s movies that people like seem to cherish because somebody else like introduced them to these 80s movies. Uh, so, uh, way back in middle school for me, uh, back when I was still having sleepovers at my house and like I'd have my friend over, my friend Sunny uh, was over a whole bunch. My mom would do this thing where she would go out to Blockbuster Video solo and she would just pick up a whole like handful of movies that she thought looked interesting and then bring them back for us. Now this was a fun game because th it was very hit or miss, uh, but it is how I ended up seeing uh, a bunch of like very strange, bizarre movies and... Uh, one of them one time was Labyrinth and Sunny and I had no context for what this movie was. We didn't know anything. My mom didn't know about it. And she was just like, I thought it looked interesting. So here you go. And, uh, and we watched it. And I think I certainly came away from it. Just like, I don't fully understand what I just watched, but I like, I was, I was, I was into it. I don't fully know what I watched, but I was, I was there. Um, and then I never watched it since then, except for last night. And uh, another time my mom brought home this movie called Dracula 3000, which was really bad. Oh, classic. <laughs> I literally, my, my friend Sunny and I, we literally use Dracula 3000 as like the benchmark for the worst possible movie. And I think that's accurate. Jumper is better than Dracula 3000, Oof. which is saying a lot if you know me and how much I detest Jumper. But what about compared to the book Armada? Although, I keep forgetting you weren't there for that episode. Jesus Christ. Nope, Corinne no has memory. not been subjected to the worst book I've ever read. All right, before we give Ernest Klein any more attention, because right now he's already getting more than he, like, needs or deserves, Ugh. let's talk about Jim Henson and David Bowie some more, who <laughs> much more deserving of, of our airtime. So, actually, I really wanted to ask, Cleo, how did you end up seeing Labyrinth the first time? Was it because I know it's been, you know, obviously, like you've talked about just kind of the sheer quantity of Labyrinth stuff that you own. So clearly it's been an important movie to you in some way. Yeah. So how, yeah, how did you first come across it? So I think I was about eight years old um, and it was playing on Disney Channel during like around the holiday, like around Christmas. Um, and I only caught it about partway. So I didn't see the beginning at first. I, only, I It was already on when I turned on the television. And... I remember distinctly looking at David Bowie, knowing I was attracted to him, but being very unsure of what his gender was. And so I asked my parents, like, is that a man or a woman? And they told me. And then I, I guess looking back, that should have been a very distinct clue to my pansexuality, um, that the answer didn't really matter to my level of attractedness to him. Um, but it was very i don't know it like it's interesting cuz it it was a very distinct experience um in that and i i had been exposed to eight movies from the 80s a bunch but something about labyrinth really spoke to me and it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what it was other than it was something about the production design it's very so brian froud is was the concept artist uh for this movie and then also dark crystal which came out um shortly before uh labyrinth did and was a lot darker in a lot of ways, I think, than Labyrinth. Also a movie I was exposed to via my mother's blockbuster rummaging. <laughs> so just I also always thought Dark Crystal was the one that came out second. Mm -mm. Just yeah, no, so Dark Crystal is interesting. So I definitely prefer Labyrinth to Dark Crystal. I know a lot of other people feel the opposite. But um, I only saw Dark Crystal, or I, I rather, I only remember seeing Dark Crystal later on in life, like in grad school later on. Um, but Labyrinth became one of these things where suddenly I became obsessed with David Bowie at the age of eight. And that was like <laughs> all I would listen to. I had a, I had uh, like a tape, like a cassette tape. And 
I would listen on my Walkman and on our stereo to Best of David Bowie. And we had like, these are out of print now, but there was the Sound and Vision trio uh, CDs that were kind of like a best of compilation. And I actually had, so I grew up just like loving David Bowie and I got to see him perform live in Maryland. And unfortunately he was like opening for Moby, which I'm like, you don't, David Bowie opens for no one. So I was really pissed off about that because his his set list was like much shorter than Moby's and like, guess who's more entertaining to watch, Moby or David Bowie? <laughs> yeah, that's a weird lineup. Yeah. Yeah, and Labyrinth ended up being really, like, it informed my creative way of, or my, my thought process when it comes to storytelling. And I ended up going to film school and I wrote papers on Labyrinth and stuff because I never could get it out of my head. And I had other friends who were obsessed with it also, even though, like, it's objectively speaking... You know, there's a lot of really trite writing, kind of cliched stuff. Things are really cheesy. It's very, um, some of the dialogue is just over the top and like beats you over the head. But there's something really, really charming about it. And I think once we get into spoiler territory, I'll say, I think the ending note and message is a good one and a powerful one and one that people often kind of miss. Yeah, it's a very 80s fantasy I guess, you know, movie, but just kind of thing in general, which is, I guess that's another thing that I'm sort of curious about. Like, it reminds me a lot of things like, um, like The Princess Bride, where you know, even like in some of the aesthetics where it's like you can, you can see the set and almost in a way that makes it like really charming um, and sort of in a way where it's just like, you know, you could, it's like, well, you know, seeing like seeing like the plastic rocks feels a little bit better than seeing the green screen. Um you know, and like seeing the point where like the plastic rocks are differentiated from uh, like the hand painted background, um, you know, and little things like that, that, that feel very much of a time, but also kind of, yeah, with, with that dialogue, with that kind of storytelling, but it is absolutely one where I, I, I agree that like the dialogue can be, you know, trite and kind of over the head, but I think there's a certain charm to it as well, which is kind of nice. It's right at that level where it's very much of the time without being like embarrassingly so. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And the other movie people always compare it to is Legend, which I think is mm. far worse and far cheesier. Yes. I, I yes. still enjoy it. I mean, there's a terribly cheesy Roxy music or Brian Ferry, rather, uh, music ver- video for it where he's wearing this like insanely giant jacket and it's like clips from the movie. And it's so Tim Curry is in that one. I think is it it's Tom Cruise also. And it's very like stereotypical fairy tale, and it's I think set like vaguely, like medieval times, which is different. Cause, so Labyrinth is starts out like it, it's all present day, but then the Labyrinth itself is kind of hodgepodge, medieval Renaissance influences various fairy tale stuff. There's like fairies and goblins and stuff running around. It's it's one of those like not supposed to be a distinct time period, but do you get the idea? It's like a really old place, and I liked that kind of it's a fairy tale that's still set in modern it's urban fantasy what we'd call urban fantasy now interesting i suppose that that is technically correct although it is the uh, only way you categorize it really yeah although it is it is not what i would think of what i would think of things to define urban fantasy but i'll give it to you not that you need my approval but there you go (laughs) You have it. <laughs> I feel like the other movie that it always reminds me of, at least a bit, is The NeverEnding Story. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That, very much that same, like, aesthetic. That same, like, kind of, like, weird fairy tale is almost the the best way I can describe it. You know, it, it feels it feels like when fantasy movies really started getting kind of creative uh, and not really just sort of defaulting to, like, a swords and sorcery kind of thing, but having more of just, like, the... You know, oh shit! Like we can, we can make up our fantasy worlds from scratch. We don't need to use this sort of like Tolkien esque base. We can, we can have luck dragons and like swamps of despair, etc. But bogs of eternal stench. That's yeah, yeah. Man, never ending story. Those are smart. anyway. We're here to talk about labyrinth. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, Cleo, you touched on the the spoiler break. Is there anything that we want to talk about? before the spoiler break uh, so we can start moving into that because I think that this is absolutely a movie that I 
am looking forward to getting into like being able to talk about the whole thing. Yeah, I think I mean if we're going to do the like would we recommend this? I mean, I always unless you are a no fun person, I recommend Labyrinth. <laughs> and and, and there's some people who are just like really into being super critical of things and not enjoying anything and like if it's at all cheesy then they're like I'm too good for this. I want all my movies to be super realistic and grim dark and like this is not grim dark. <laughs> this is if there was like an opposite of grim dark, uh, bright fate stuff. I don't know. I was going to try to come up with something but I'm <laughs> running out of brain juice it's an uplifting movie it's goofy um there the musical numbers will be stuck in your head forever like really you'll never get them out of your head as soon as you look at like a labyrinth poster or anything that's like labyrinth related you'll hear the music in your head it's i mean it's dated because it's super duper 80s but and i don't know how like i don't know how like the youth of today like i don't know how teenagers right now would react to labyrinth i assume they would still love it because like we were all none of us were around in the 80s and we still got our hands on it and there are plenty of people our age who enjoy it so i I don't know that it'll be that in particular would be an interesting question to answer just because we are that strange in-between generation when it comes to like technology and all that stuff and so we remember the pre-technology age and grew up in it and all that and our parents were entirely in it and now kids today are entirely in the tech age and I wonder if stuff like this is much harder for them to like consume and enjoy in the ways that we did. I will say though that so one of the benefits of Labyrinth being entirely like practical stuff and puppets um there's no CGI there's one awful CGI owl um other than that though all the puppets and the creatures they're all like physical stuff they're all practical effects uh, so you're not going to be dealing with, like, really shitty CGI throughout the entire film. There's there's just a few instances. Hey, I did remark to Justin last night, like, that the effects hold up really well. Yeah, one of the... We we got the new, like, 4K TV, and I went all out and bought the Blu-ray player. And the recent, like, release of Labyrinth was, like, a... Uh, like hand done really well done like 4k remaster and so like this movie in a resolution that wasn't conceived of at the time that it was like created um it looks phenomenal because all the effects were practical and everything it's it's that thing where like no matter how far away we get from that moment in time like it's going to look good in certain ways because everything was was handmade, right? It's it's like the reason Jurassic Park holds up so well. So yeah, the the, the look of the entire film is just very charming, and I, I I think that that is in large part the responsibility of Brian Froud, the concept artist, who I really recommend if you like Labyrinth, you pick up one or all of his books. Um, he and his wife Wendy Froud. So fun fact, also his there he and Wendy Froud's baby. Toby Froud was the baby Toby in the movie, and now Toby is like a puppeteer uh, in the UK somewhere. But <laughs> puppeteering—that's neat. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, and it, it's like puppeteering seems puppet building and puppeteering seems to be like a family business thing a little bit because like Brian Henson has clearly taken over his kind of his father's place, and so yeah, if you like the way that the movie looks or. You know how the the idea of these goblins and fairies. Brian Froud has some like really lovely books out there. Um, good, I think there's one called like Good Fairies, Bad Fairies that I got my hands on when I was a kid, and like the artwork is just stunning. And it's like really some of it's a little bit disturbing, at least when you're a kid, just because it's like sp- the idea of spooky fairies. Sometimes you're not used to that um, as like a little child, but I highly recommend taking a look at his work. I I would certainly also recommend the movie. Uh, I I think just sort of hands down, no real qualifiers. Like it, it like what Cleo said. It's not not everyone is going to be in love with it, but at at least for me, it feels like such a. It, it feels like we're at the point where it's clear that it's sort of like earned its place in. I don't. I hate to say like the canon for some things because I don't like the notion that like some stuff is not like worthy of the canon, right? But like this is this is one of those movies that is a touchstone for so many other things that even if it's not your favorite thing, uh, it's a really worthwhile reference point to have. So at that point, it feels like something where I would even go so far as to say, even if it might not be for you, it's it's worth seeing if you're interested in film and fantasy just 
broadly speaking, uh, just because you're going to see sort of other things and you're going to see sort of influences and notes of this kind of like, because at the end of the day, the whole thing is a bit of a twist on Wizard of Oz, right? And sort of seeing the ways that those twists kind of get carried into other things. I think that it ends up being a, like a worthwhile movie for all of that. All of that said, I I do also think it's immensely enjoyable. I think that it's just fun to watch. The art is gorgeous. David Bowie's great in it. It, it, Bowie did like a a certain amount of screen work. Like this isn't like the only movie that is a man who fell to earth, all that kind of stuff. And just, he's always such an interesting presence when you do get to see him on screen. Uh, It's, I don't, the whole thing I really do think just is immensely enjoyable. It's very fun. It's it's a cool story. I, I remember it really kind of like freaked me out as a kid. Um, but it's not like actively scary. It's like just that right level of like uncomfortable that kids like want but won't necessarily ask for. And it, it's very good. It really hits that, that coming of age sweet spot in a way that I think it's really hard to nail. Um, so yeah, I, I would recommend this movie to everybody. Again, even if even if it ends up not necessarily being your thing, I think at the very least it is like a worthwhile reference point to have. And I think that there are going to be a lot of people who maybe go into it thinking it wouldn't be their thing and then who end up really enjoying it. It's it's hard not to like, I feel like. Um, yeah, I, I would also recommend the movie. Um, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect going into it when I was like 10 years old. Uh, and I didn't really know what I thought of it when I finished watching it when I was 10 years old, but I, I definitely appreciated the fact that I had seen it as I got older, and re-watching it last night, I could see a lot of... Justin and I kept, I guess, joking back and forth. We could see, like, how Labyrinth had clearly influenced, like, other other movies and other, you know, visual things in the past. Um, yeah, everything that both James and Cleo said, like, it's, it's charming, it's fun, uh, you, you will probably end up liking it even if you think you don't, and the effects just really hold up super well, so. Yeah, I, I would also recommend it, my original thought had been with the qualifier that if, if, if somebody isn't particularly interested in it for any, like, reason, outside of like oh that's old or oh that's 80s or like if they like my original thinking was that there are certain people who would be like all right well just don't bother but i think like listening to you guys it is the kind of thing where i would try to probably get anybody to watch it for a first time uh to to really like see if it ends up sort of exceeding their expectations in that way like it's it is this kind of movie that even if you don't think you're going to enjoy it you probably come out of it getting something also just kind of skimming through the wikipedia page for it like it there's a lot of interesting people who like you know are involved but there are also a bunch of uh interesting people who are kind of involved behind the scenes like george lucas uh was involved with this terry jones uh from monty python was involved with this a i i kind of like skimmed through just in general like the screenwriting process a lot of really interesting talented people like took a pass at the script and like worked on some of the updates okay Uh, but which one of them was responsible for for what was it something the line that she says to her feet at the beginning cleo what is it come on feet yep yep who was responsible for that line that sounds like terry jones (laughs) i'm gonna say Terry terry jones wrote a version of the script that i actually i read at one point i think um that's pretty different um, there were several iterations of the script that were like very different from what the final product ended up being. So if you're like a major fan, then like definitely check out that and like the novelization and see what like weird tidbits could have been but weren't. Yeah, it really does seem like the the script writing process for this was I, I don't want to say fraught, but there there were definitely some competing ideas about like the general direction for the film. Um, and one thing that's kind of cool is again just from a brief skimming and not having read them, it feels like everything that came up would have been like interesting and viable. And it's just, well, what do you do when you've got like 10 different really cool ideas for your kind of out there, dark fantasy coming of age movie? You roll a D 10 and pick one. I, you know, it again, from my brief skim, I wouldn't be surprised if that, if that was it. 
All right, so um, should we should we get ready to move into spoiler territory for this? I think so. All right, so um, as as everyone knows, we're recording a little bit out of order. This is going to be our last individual uh, kind of piece of media episode, and all that's left is our final topic episode, and it's going to be coming out in two weeks. Um, no no topics after that because this is this is the end. So this is really easy for me this week. It's time for spoilers for Labyrinth. <laughs> oh boy, where to begin? Because it's tempting, to, I feel like, it's tempting to jump right to the ending, but I feel like we should cover some other ground first. I mean, we've definitely jumped right to the ending for a lot of things once we get past the spoiler break. Yeah, so I think, so the one thing, alright, so first, firstly, um, if you like, if you're obsessed with Labyrinth and you want to consume more Labyrinth-like inspired or Labyrinth-feeling things, um, there are two book. one book I have not read, but I will still recommend it because it's obviously an adaptation of Labyrinth fan fiction. Um, and it's just like, clearly it, they like talk about it on the book cover of, or not, or the back flap of, um, or inside flap, whatever the hell you call the thing, the jacket, the book jacket, it's clearly inspired by Labyrinth. Um, and it's winter song. Uh, and I cannot remember the author's name, but it's a YA novel. So that will be like a really heavy dose of Labyrinth. Um, but then what I would definitely recommend is the book. Deathless by Catherine uh, Valenti, which is more, I I, I want to say it's kind of like a grown up labyrinth in that like a, there's a lot of similarities and parallels between characters, um, but the ending is is I would say it goes more in depth and into detail into the themes that are that labyrinth explores, but the ending is not the same or the ending I would agree with because the ending of labyrinth is a note that I I don't think this movie could end on any other note and have me feel okay about it. Because the ending note is that Jareth is a seductive goblin king he, who's like, he's terrorizing Sarah, uh, played by Jennifer Connelly, and then, but also being kind of sweet and kind to her. And it's like this weird, he's modeling like what is, you know, abusive behavior and like trying to kind of like, groom her to just abide by his wishes while also telling her like, Oh, I'll do whatever you want. Um, and at the end, Sarah tells, I mean, the famous line, right? Like you have no power over me. Um, and it really, it sticks to that. It's Sarah is, this is the antagonist. Sarah needs to defeat him or, you know, overcome his influence and figure out that he doesn't have power over her, that she's like her own individual person who, even as a young girl, has power to say no to this man. Um, and I think a lot of the initial reactions of fans is like, oh no, but like I so ship Jareth and Sarah, um, and there's all this fan fiction, all this fan art of them together. And that always still kind of squicks me out, because David Bowie at the time of filming this was like in his 40s, I want to say. Jennifer Connelly was 14, uh, and I really like Jim Henson's message of this is a story about a girl who's coming into her own power and is saying no to this man who should be, you know, completely just have all the power in the world over her according to society and according to the rules of this magical universe. Uh, so that's something I'd be interested in hearing your guys' take on. Yeah, I will say I, I don't not to not to get too much into why someone ships something because that's you know their own choice but there is a part of me that's like it it feels like that's just because you like the movie and they're the only two human characters and i mean not that jareth is a human but the only two who are not puppets um now if you wanted to get into any of the ships involving any of these characters and the puppets i am on board but it it does feel a little bit like yeah, I, I, I'm definitely with you in that notion that it's like, it feels like, I don't know, I, I be invested in whatever relationship you want, but it does seem like that very much misses the point of the movie, which, okay, I guess, but it, it does leave me, like, questioning. It's like, did we see the same thing? Like, what's going on here? Like, where where is this, like, level of devotion coming I feel like from? that could frequently be an issue with shipping in a very general sense. Yes, fandom and shipping is with people uh, holding up extremely, 
I hate I hate to use the word, but problematic like relationships and, and like and like idolizing them and uh, and importantly engaging in them, but without any sense of self criticism on on the issue. Like you you will have a ton of people who ship something that is objectively like if you were to put these two characters together in the same context of the relationship that they had in the original piece of media they are they are their relationship would be extremely abusive or toxic or bad um and you often get the sense in a lot of these sorts of ships that people are what they're trying to do is just like ignore that i guess there, there's no sense of like self-reflection in in terms of whether or like god what's the right way to say this they're not shipping them and doing it with a nuanced critique of this is an example of an abusive relationship but uh i am doing it because i want to tell a story about an abusive relationship it's it's very much these two have so much chemistry and i want to make them have sex now um, you see it with the Jessica Kilgrave shippers from uh, Jessica Jones season one. You see it with the Raylo shippers from The Force Awakens. Like, it's not great. <laughs> I would say it, the other thing I would be curious about. I'm I'm less invested in fandoms in general, so I I don't. I, I come from a position of knowing. I, I don't know. I, I know less about. I don't know what I'm talking about. Is is the thing I'm going to preface all of this with. But I would say the other sort of impulse that makes a lot of sense to me in this case is that maybe some of that drive is coming more from I identify with Sarah. She's the protagonist of the movie. I was maybe around her age when I saw the movie. Um, And then also David Bowie is hot. And so it turns more into a it's not so much Sarah, the 14, 15 year old. It is say like it me someone who is attracted to Bowie later in their life going in and creating that scene for just sort of like personal reasons just like ah no like it, it's not really it it's at the point where it, it's not really about the characters it's about it, yourself and how you're feeling which is a, another angle that I could I I I'm certainly in no position to say that that is or isn't why anyone is committed to that ship but it's at least one that I could understand and it's certainly a, a reason that I could understand for ignoring all of the kind of like but did we see the same movie and like that seems sort of you know gross for other reasons but that would be one at least where i could i could certainly understand you know where it's like it's not it's not about that it's about creating a situation with david bowie yeah i can i i for sure can totally see like identify with sarah david bowie is hot as being like you know a, a reason to do it i think i think sort of the 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 key thing that you see fairly frequently with like this particular brand of shipping i guess is uh the romantic romanticization of abusive behavior um like specifically you'll have a lot of people like really like defending uh their shipping by saying like no but this gesture is so romantic and he clearly loves her and like etc etc and each example they hold up is like a textbook example of abuse um and Mm. and that and that sort of defense of it is usually done like unironically and like like completely like 100% like behind it and I'm not saying that this is how everybody ships problematic ships and I'm not saying like you know it is what it is society has told women that this is how men love them and it's bad and wrong and you know, we are trying to educate one another and, like, break out of these, like, systems of abuse that we're told is romantic and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, there are an awful lot of people who romanticize abuse and uh, gravitate towards shipping characters that reenact patterns of abuse in their on-screen relationship. So, yes, that is all i have to say about problematic shipping it's also interesting because there is this trend in fan generated images like fan images for labyrinth of because i think people i do identify okay sarah 14 
probably too young for this, like, well, 40-something actor, like, many hundreds, maybe thousands of years old character, um, somehow in, in fantasy, if someone's hundreds or thousands of years old, it seems to make it better than if they were, like, in their 40s and the other person is a teenager. Uh, anyway, though, there is this trend... Uh, on like Tumblr and Pinterest and stuff of images of an older Jennifer Connelly from like a different movie being placed in the same image as Jareth and like shipping an idea of older Sarah with Jareth. But that like, if, if you're saying, yes, this is a story that I want to see told or that I want to like write that's still a story of someone going back to their abuser and being like, well, now that I'm older, it's okay for me to be with you. Even though you were like a sexual predator to me when I was a little girl. Uh, so it's an interesting concept, but still very deeply problematic one. Uh, it's, it's a strange fandom. I don't know. Like I have, I'm sure there's like a million labyrinth fans who would rip me to shreds for daring to like, look down upon this pairing but whatever uh so yeah so i guess the important to acknowledge that part of you know part of the the people who consume labyrinth and love labyrinth are people who are shipping the ship in this way um but moving away from that i guess uh Unless we have anything more we want to say about it, but I feel like we've, I feel like we've talked about it enough. Um, uh, I think we were starting to talk about the message at the end of the movie, and we sort of got sidetracked into this. And um, I, I would, I guess, like to go back to the ending of the movie itself. Um, I didn't really remember how the movie ended, and I have actually. I actually, it was more familiar to me because I had read pe- read what people had written about the ending of Labyrinth more recently than I had watched it. Um, but uh, the thing that I definitely didn't notice when I was 10 and definitely did notice now uh, was uh, the whole, the lines that uh, Jareth was singing, like, you know, especially like, I have given everything to you you know, you coward and I was scary, as though, like, you know, his menace was a gift to her. Um, and I thought that was, I thought that was a really interesting idea that, like, that Jareth, the Goblin King, you know, was just trying to fulfill whatever role Sarah was imagining for him. You know, like, he was just trying to be whatever uh, she wanted him to be. I thought that was an interesting concept i suppose obviously we've just talked a whole lot about abuse tactics but putting that aside for a second uh i don't know it it was just a really interesting idea that jareth felt like he he was the one being uh kindly and generous in this in this instance uh there are several different layers to this in that it's kind of so speaking of things with the word labyrinth in the title there are some similarities to pan's labyrinth and i wouldn't be surprised to find out that guillermo del toro took some inspiration from this one um in that you could say yes all of this stuff is literally happening um or you could say this is sarah's coping mechanism and this is kind of some inner Joseph Campbellian journey she's experiencing while she's just sitting in her room, kind of like sorting through stuff. Maybe she's like writing her own fan fiction in her head because the whole, the framing device a little bit is that there's this play, I guess, called The Labyrinth. And she's reading it at the beginning. She's reading lines from it. She's trying to memorize it. Her mother is an act. So this is definitely canon, not just from the novelization, but from like little things you see in her room. Her mother is a stage actress. And her partner on the stage is David Bowie. Not David Bowie, the character, but a, another character played. It has David Bowie's face. Um, and you see it in news clippings. So, yeah, if you want some weird 
Freudian shit going on. She's like having these romantic fantasies about her mother's stage partner. And it gets the the real the level of reality gets a little bit especially confused at the end, I think. Um, in that the scene where she's looking in the mirror and she sees Hoggle and all her friends like saying, Should you need us? Like just let us know and we'll come back. And that's a really interesting message because it's saying things from childhood you may still need in adulthood. While earlier in the movie, there's a scene with like the junk lady, the lady who has all the stuff on her back and she keeps giving Sarah um, like, here's your bear. Like, didn't you miss your bear? Here's your doll. Here's this music, music box. Like these are the things you need to make you happy. So and it's a fine line between saying like, okay, don't hold on to these things from childhood, but do hold on to these things from childhood. So I think it's like the the thing, the message is the physical paraphernalia of childhood isn't necessary or good to hold on to or like, or to hoard as you become an adult necessarily. But concepts and feelings and like just your imagination in general um those are the things that should be held on to and i think that's what the ending is trying to say with the whole like mirror thing and then suddenly there's a big old party in the bedroom and then i mean even even in a more explicit sense right like holding on to the the physical possessions is less important than like cherishing the positive relationships that you form right like yeah i agree yeah i also uh i really enjoy like whether this is real or not i i very much enjoy the fact that labyrinth ends with her like just getting to embrace the magic again because I, I feel like we've talked about this before, but I fucking hate how... I fucking hate stories that are like, you know, now that you've learned your lesson and become a better person, you don't get the fun, cool magic anymore. Yeah. Like, I hate that. It's so dumb and bad. I despise it. There's also that message of when you become an adult, you lose all of that. And I think this is distinctly saying you get the choice to call that back into your life. Like, you don't have to lose it. Yeah. Props, props to Jim Henson or I don't know the script or whatever. Props to them for for not making this a, a whole like you know. Oh, I, I I love you guys and I wish I could see you again, but now I'm an adult, and instead making it like no, we could still have cool rad magic fun. Like right on, go magic. Yeah, with that, without having thought of it directly before, it does feel like a very Henson kind of thing like yeah the ma- like the magic of childhood doesn't really leave you you know it's just your choice so going a little bit back to um uh corinne what you were saying about kind of the notion of uh, jareth kind of coming in and sort of trying to be what sarah wants things like that um I think is, you know, uh, it's, that's really the part of the movie that the first time I saw it, like really stuck with me, this notion that sort of the whole thing is set off by, by exactly that, right. Is Sarah kind of like wishing that like, she didn't like have to take care of Toby that night. Um, and it, it really even starts with even just like in the most literal level, Jareth coming in and giving her exactly what she asked for. And then her immediately realizing that, no, this is not actually what I want. Like, this is not a good thing. And then she needs to go and save Toby. Um, and so I, I think that, that that all, like, very much fits in with uh, just that notion of Jareth overall, that he is it's a little bit of like a monkey's paw, where it's that, like, I'm going to give you exactly what you think you want. And through that, you're going to realize that it's not what you want at all. Not that he's, like, providing a service and, like, showing you. It's like, oh, no, you didn't really want this. But that that is, like, that is part of his his evil, his villainy, is in that facade of giving you exactly what you asked for. And so for me, when, like, when I first saw this movie as, you know, as a kid and as a kid with siblings and as a kid with siblings who were, 
you know, occasionally frustrating because we were children um, and humans. But, you know, with that, it's like sort of like it, that impulse of just like, oh, like I'm frustrated with my like young sibling. And then that sort of like fear of like getting exactly what you wanted. It, that that was one of the things that really stuck with me there. And one of the things that I do think is interesting about the movie is that I think overall it, it really is about her sort of like realizing, you know, her power and her um, sort of like getting away from Jareth who is abusive and all of those things, but that it also still has that like that central thing that got her into the mess was, I don't know, just overcoming something that really is so childish that just like that childish frustration with a sibling just for existing, especially when they are like a baby, you know, it's the kind of thing where like, you know, you see when, like when really little kids, like, you know, see like their, they're like baby siblings for the first time and they're just like, no, I hate them. And they don't even know anything about them. It's just like, no, it's just attention that like mom and dad used to give to me. And now there's a baby. And how do I compete with a baby? And like that just very base, very childish instinct. Um, and so I really like that it, while the movie is about growing up and all of those things and sort of taking responsibility for your actions and setting things right when you do make a mistake, I, I do like that it, I don't know, I like it that it's not necessarily, it doesn't feel like it's criticizing Sarah for having that childish instinct. It's just now putting her in the position where those childish instincts can have consequences and that when that happens while you are growing up, that it's not, it's not just that, you know, it's bad to have had that instinct. You just need to then handle it appropriately. And you're kind of at that position where, okay, well, now that you're growing up, you have sort of the capacity to act on those childish instincts in a way that you didn't when you were a child. And then you need to deal with the repercussions of that and set them right. And so in this case, you've got Jareth who comes in and gives her the option to get everything she wanted. And then she has to like deal with the, the consequences of that situation. Um, and I, I, the big thing that I can never quite reconcile in the movie is how those two like aspects of the movie work together. Like, I, I feel like it's definitely there in the coming of age thing, but between just sort of like the, I don't know, it, the, what feels like the, the plot line about abuse. And then what feels like the plot line about just like, Oh shit, I put my baby brother in danger. I, that's one of the things that I can I, I can never quite fit together 100%, you know? Yeah, I feel like there are some different elements of the story that kind of, they don't seem to mesh super well. Or like they just, I'm not sure how they're relevant to each other necessarily. And it could be that like, they're just separate things that are kind of going on. And in a way, if Jareth is a creation, or not necessarily even a creation of Sarah... But his actions are being dictated by Sarah's needs. And in that moment, she thinks she needs Toby to be gone. And then she also, throughout the entire movie, also thinks she needs some kind of male figure figure to act this way towards her. Because that's what she, she grew up thinking. Because, like, let's say, you know, let's dive into the idea of... of her mother and she clearly idolizes her um she keeps her playbills and stuff in her room like on her mirror and she's seeing these male roles being kind of depicted in this way and maybe she thinks okay society is telling me this is how men treat women and girls if i'm going to have my story maybe i need a man to treat me that way and then it's kind of the whole story is a long realization that she doesn't have to accept that again though like i'm not sure how how the two would tie the two different plot lines kind of tie in together except for that it's jara serving a purpose it almost seems like sarah is just like it's like sort of this coming of age story is uh, just sort of expected to like umbrella over all of the various childish things she has been seen displaying. Like 
the she she comes of age in response to one external force and that is Jareth and then everything else just sort of falls into place underneath of it because now she's bigger and smarter and wiser and has learned about the consequences of her actions and that she has power and, and stuff like that. So like automatically her relationship with her baby brother is repaired because uh because now she understands that adult men don't have power over her. You know what I mean? Like it it almost seems like it almost seems like, you know, growing up is just like a single domino and you push it over and then all the other dominoes of of bad childish things just fall over and then you're an adult. That sounds like growing that's up about right. Yeah, I, feel like... I think that's a pretty accurate description. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like... that sounds like puberty. Um also I just realized interesting yeah. side note. It is very, I think, both interesting and retrospectively important that David Bowie is playing the role of Jareth. Because David Bowie also, like, slept with a lot of really, really young groupies during his, at least his early musical career. I don't know about later on. And so that he's playing this role of being kind of predatory towards a 14-year-old girl... There's like a weird meta significance to that. I don't have enough knowledge about David Bowie's sexual history or sexual impropriety to be able to comment on this. I don't know if there's much more to say. I'll just say that I think it's important to be able to look at the things and the people we love, especially if they're artists, critically, um, and be able to accept that it's like that's part of the thing that you love. Uh, instead of deciding to, like, be blind to it. Um, and Labyrinth poses some really interesting challenges with that. How did you all feel about the other supporting characters? So, like, Hoggle and Sir Didymus and, um, Ludo. I love Ludo. (laughs) Well, I think we know how you feel about Ludo. Um, I mean, for sure, like, Hoggle was the, the strongest one, the one who got, like, the, the story arc and the the um, character development in throughout the course of the movie. I think that I think you know Ludo was very cute, um, but definitely served more to show Sarah her own strengths than to have his own story. And Didymus, while fun, um, didn't really serve much of a purpose. Uh, for either Sarah's story or his own. He was just, like, generic, wacky, fun companion. Which is fine. Like, I, I liked him. Um, but he didn't narratively do a whole lot. Except for provide an instance where we could see Ludo show off his dominion over rocks, which I guess was important. <laughs> Not dominion, I'm sorry. Friendship with. Right. Uh, so, I mean... They were certainly, they were all enjoyable, wacky, fun companions, um, but I think they, they each had a different, uh, I think they each had a different purpose in the narrative, with Didymus's being t- t- to lay some groundwork for the later uh, deus ex machina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that about, that really about sums it up for me. It was, Hago was, was, like, clearly had the most depth, right? Had the most like time in the movie over all of them and and was the one who was given a any kind of like character depth or advancement or growth or anything like that ludo is basically a giant teddy bear and didymus was like effectively like late stage comic relief and and kind of not not much else we talked about her a little bit earlier but the junk lady always like really scared me i always thought that she was very well done very effective i obviously i shouldn't say that uh, I didn't consciously think when I was younger, oh, wow, she was really well done and effective. <laughs> but I certainly had the emotional reaction. Um, but yeah, it was like then like later going back, I, I think that the junk lady as like, as like a side character is, is really good. I also think that, um, I, I also think that she does a really good job of sort of, I don't know, it being sort of one of the, the scary parts of growing up to a kid, like it very explicitly too especially when you're still at a point in your life where it's just like, no, yeah, like your bear does make you feel good. And that idea of like 
having your bear with you, making you feel good, being presented as like a scary thing, it I think is like really effective, especially like to a kid, but then doesn't like lose its meaning like as you grow up and come back to the movie. But yeah, no, and just like in general, her design is like carrying all of this stuff around on her back like i think it's very effective i think it's i, I think she's super the welcome. the small touch that that i wanted to bring up earlier but we kind of got past it and i didn't want to i didn't want to backtrack but the 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 very sort of kind of subtle uh thing of her just turning sarah into a junk lady throughout that entire sequence was was something that i really loved about how it was done like it really sort of hammers home the idea of like being too uh too obsessed and and connected to these like physical objects will like you know it it can make you her it can do that to you and i thought that was that was really great and terrifying i found that whole that whole sequence was like the one sequence that really really stuck with me uh from the for the first time i watched the movie when i was 10 and i think a lot of it uh for me was that sarah was brought into her bedroom and thought she was safe and then that safety the like the safety of your bedroom was like then immediately like violated by the junk lady like still being there and her still being in the middle of this this weird uh non-dream fantasy uh experience i guess um and then watching the room get like torn down and like the safety of it being torn down uh that whole aspect of it from stuck with me more than the junk lady herself alone did yeah it's like those dreams where you wake up and then but like you didn't really wake up yeah i feel like yeah the junk lady like her lesson within the greater story is one that i have yet to really fully process and be able to actually apply to my life because i have so much childhood stuff still like i was telling you about my labyrinth collection and that's just like stuff i've gotten as an adult i mean i have books and stuffed animals i'm just looking around my room right now comic books and it does feel like a security blanket and i don't know whether maybe i'm just like a hoarder and the lesson here is don't be a hoarder but i'm specifically a hoarder for childhood childhood stuff like Things I got in college or grad school, I'm much more willing to part with. And maybe I just need to watch Labyrinth like 20 more times in order to fully uh, embrace this lesson. I mean, there's only one way to find out. One thing that I guess is is less about uh, what the movie itself is trying to say, but this is one of those movies where it's it's very interesting to think about the like almost when it comes to casting. Jane Krakowski, I think that is is actually her name, but uh, she's um, Jenna on 30 Rock, and she's an unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, she was the close second between, uh, like, up against Jennifer Connelly and almost was cast in this all the way back then. And, like, Laura Dern and Helena Bonham Carter both auditioned. Dang. And, like, Bowie was Henson's first choice for Jareth, but uh, Michael Jackson was his very close second choice. And just, like, imagining this movie with, like, with Michael Jackson instead of instead of Bowie or with, I mean, it's, it's like, with somebody who, like, in retrospect, right, like Helena Bottom Carter or Lara Dern instead of Jennifer Connelly is, like, it's surreal. I can't imagine this movie being what it is without Bowie, for sure. Like, if it was, I mean, Michael Jackson was, like, the other sort of equal name at the time i would say and i mean arguably more famous but like i i feel like this movie couldn't have been what it was if you didn't have bowie playing jareth well with that i think it's probably about time to uh call it for our labyrinth episode this is weird this is this is it this is the end of our last actual media episode i don't have anything else to say about that but it's weird um Though, luckily, it's not the end of everything just yet. We've got one more episode coming. It's going to be our topic episode for endings when we'll be coming back and talking about uh, Dark Knight Returns. We'll be talking about Passage, and we'll be talking more about Labyrinth, and that'll all be coming up next time. Uh, For now, thank you so much for listening. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is to tell your friends about the show. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at RWP Podcast or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash RWP Podcast.